This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has the potential, dare I say, probability to give offense. It's Friday, November 13th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Did you see any memes or cable news segments a few weeks ago about Nancy Pelosi's freezer? You know, she has two of them. The speaker likes her ice cream. And so you know, it was inevitable what happened next. So, of course, it didn't take long for the Trump campaign to punch back. The Trump campaign releasing the brutal ad attacking Pelosi for showing off her expensive ice cream while the rest of the country suffers. Let's watch this. In fact, let's not. I will spare you. Nancy was doing an interview with James Corden, and then we had a shot in that Trump commercial of an American suffering, and then Nancy Pelosi laughing, and a shot of an American with their own freezer, but without a lot of food in it. Tagline, let them eat ice cream, Nancy Antoinette. If you missed that one or forgot that one, I am sorry that I had to be the one to remind or inform you. But since I did, I am obliged to point out that the ad is misleading because it was not Nancy Pelosi who held up the stimulus bill. It was Nancy Pelosi who insisted on a large stimulus matching the funding of the first stimulus that got Americans through the first few weeks of the pandemic. And what kind of dishonest person would say otherwise? Well, you heard it was a right wing smear. That's not surprising. What is surprising is who else thought off the old ice cream invective? The Justice Democrats, Sunrise Movement, New Deal Strategies, and Data for Progress for progressive groups whose members make up, let's call it the far left of the Democratic Party, and who work closely with members of the squad. You know the squad. In some cases, these groups are staffed by former Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez staffers. So that's who they are. And these groups wrote an open letter to, well, me in my inbox for one. And they, in this letter, deeply criticized the moderate wing of the Democratic Party because the moderate members of the Democratic Party were criticizing them. The moderates were saying the progressives had hurt the moderates' chances because of their extreme rhetoric. And the progressives, I guess, were very intent on proving the moderates' case because in their letter and in their assessment of why the Democrats didn't do so well, they write, and this is the second graph, the economy was voters' top concern in the election. When Democratic leaders make unforced errors, you know what? You don't need me to read it. Why don't we let the Fox and Friends gleefully quote from this letter? When Democratic leaders make unforced errors, like showing off two sub-zero freezers full of ice cream on national television or cozy up with the Wall Street executives and corporate lobbyists while Trump tells voters we are the party of the swamp, it is not surprising that we lose. I mean, this is the stuff that usually get on um, secure conference calls. They're having these conversations out loud. Right. Who are you well, siding yeah. with? How can they how can we hope that how can they both lose? I can answer that, Brian Kilmeade. They both lose if they tear themselves apart. And in my interview today, coming up, I will talk to a just favorite, Jess McIntosh, who is situated somewhere right in the middle of the 
two parties, on the fulcrum of these two groups. She understands them both. She worked with the Clinton, Hillary Clinton campaign as sort of their woke whisperer, my description, not hers. But before that convo, I want to break format a little bit and do an extended top of the show. The spiel will be shorter because I've been thinking about this all week, really almost for two weeks, and I'm going to lay out my assessment of the arguments over which part of the party has the better part of this bill of particulars. First, don't tear each other apart. Absolutely true. And it's not a dodge, right? It's not just saying, why can't we all get along? Fight. Absolutely. Get into your differences. Hash it out. But be smart about where, when, and how to have this fight. The more progressive members of the party are really gleeful, and they love tweaking Nancy Pelosi about her freezer in public, in open letters. That's immature and counterproductive. Plus, everyone likes ice cream. Who wouldn't want two freezers if they could afford two freezers? The very best part of the progressive's argument is right there in an AOC tweet where she notes that every Democrat who backed Medicare for all won re-election. That's true. If I were her, I'd be saying it too. Now I'm saying this. I'm giving you a bunch of caveats. There are 181 co-sponsors of Medicare for all. That means there are over 50 Democrats who weren't on board with Medicare for all. And of those 50, the results are still pending, but you know, somewhere near 40 got reelected to Congress. So meaning it's true, you can support Medicare for all in some swing districts and win, but the reason that the record is perfect, that every candidate who supported Medicare for all won, is that a lot of candidates won because they didn't support it. In other words, had they supported it, it really would have imperiled their chances. I think of Lauren Underwood, a nurse from the Illinois suburbs. She flipped a district in 2018. She has been declared the winner in her race this time, came from behind, or at least from behind, according to the late counting ballots, and she won by only a few thousand votes. I think it would have been suicidal for her to sign on to Medicare for All, even if in the recesses of her soul that only Florence Nightingale's lantern could illuminate, she would like to. A number of, let's say, non-Medicare for All supporters lost, but I'm doubtful that if Max Rose running in Staten Island, which is Republican plus 11 in terms of where the district stands in party registration, or say Joe Cunningham in South Carolina's first district, the reddest district won by a Democrat in 2018, if those guys had said, hey, we support Medicare for All, they'd have lost too. Perfect record gone. So it is true, though, let's hear AOC put it the way she wants to put it. This is on CNN. You no, know, I think Katie Porter is an amazing example. Michael Levin. Mm-hmm. Um, there are swing seats. Every single swing seat member that co-sponsored Medicare for all won their re-election. Right. And so the conversation is a little bit deeper than that, than, than just saying, you know, anything progressive is toxic and a losing message. Right. But it's also the case that everything progressive isn't a winning message and, in fact, can be a losing message. The progressives don't acknowledge this. It's not in their interest to, but they don't. Take support of the Green New Deal. Most members who supported the Green New Deal won re-election, but a couple didn't. Some members who won re-election didn't support the Green New Deal, and that was probably important to their re-election. Now, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, those were the actual issues that a Democrat could take on or decline to be on board with, and they were on the record. Then there were the words or phrases like the 
word socialism or the phrase defund the police. And the question, the assertion by moderates is that that those phrases and their association with the Democratic Party cost moderate seats. Many incumbents who lost or challengers who thought they had a chance but really didn't have a chance were smeared by accusations of associations with socialism or the idea of defunding the police. But what's the solution to that? No Democrat introduced a bill to defund the police. Very few members of Congress even flirted with the phrase. Maybe the member who came closest of actually endorsing defunding the police was Ilhan Omar. She was asked by Jake Tapper about Joe Biden's specific opposition to defunding the police. Here's what Omar said. Well, it sounds ludicrous to me to, to have, um, you know, people pour out into the streets asking for uh, a the system to be transformed uh, and for us to say in order for that transformation to happen, we're just going to give more money to, to, to the system without really doing any kind of systematic change. Okay, but that is less than an endorsement. It's a non-non-endorsement. If that's what caused the moderate to lose running eight states away, maybe that moderate Democrat wasn't going to win no matter what. The calls for progressives to be more moderate are unrealistic. They are progressive. What's Bernie Sanders supposed to do? Deny the fact that he believes in socialism and he thinks if you heard him out that you might too? No. And by the same token, does AOC, and not just her, let's expand it out, Camilla Jaipal, Ro Khanna, the other members of the squad, do they think Connor Lamb should throw caution into the wind and come out opposing fracking and commit to the Green New Deal? Actually, they do think that. I think they're wrong, but I don't think progressives care. Progressives, in my experience and observation, fault moderates for their positions more than the other way around. To a member, a moderate member of the Democratic Party, they generally won't say that AOC shouldn't believe in what she believes in. They generally won't say about a progressive member who has very progressive ideas, something other than, well, you know what? That's great for the Bronx or that's great for Cambridge. But then they'll say, it just doesn't fly where I serve, Aurora, Colorado or in Provo, Utah. And indeed, Utah's fourth looks like it's flipping back to the Republicans. This is, this is just the nature of being a progressive or being a moderate. Advocates believe in advocacy. They're extremely reticent to compromise. They see compromise as a mini defeat, a sellout, an abandonment of principle. And it is also a characteristic of moderation to settle, maybe to settle for less than they could get, maybe to not dare to dream. But in the dynamic of who to blame, I would just caution against the groups who say, not only are my arguments right for my conscience and my constituents, they're right for your constituents too. So moderates have been engaged in overblame, but progressives have been engaged in thinking that their ideas should and will fly everywhere. And the moderates might want progressives to win more than the progressives want moderates to win. I mean, the Justice Democrats do put a lot of time and money into primarying moderate Democrats which means when the progressives offer up an argument that says, damn it, every Democrat should say this. And then if it turned out that all Democrats said that and some Democrats lost, well, I think the progressives would be pretty fine with that. They're running candidates against moderates as it is, hoping that moderates lose. But there is a lot more to this fight 
There are tactics. There's what to say. There's how to campaign. And that will all be coming up in the following conversation with Jess McIntosh. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Democrats, a major party, (laughs) also a major mess. After they retained the House but lost some seats, they had what was called a family meeting. And uh, if you're a member of the family, you can understand three hours crying, literally, yelling, literally, and coming away less united than before. Also, the matriarch is pretending that nothing is amiss. Joining me now to talk about the Democrats, the argument within Uh, How important is it for maybe someone who would like the Democrats to win but isn't particularly committed to either side of the argument? How important is it for progressives is Jess McIntosh. She is the co-host of Signal Boost on Sirius XM and so many credits, but senior communication advisor for Hillary Clinton. And she was in charge of communications for Emily's List. She understands all aspects of the Democratic Party. Hello, Jess. Thanks for joining me again. Everything's fine. We're fine. That's right. That's right. And I could see you as the little dog with all the flames licking the room around you. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm always playing that uh, that scene from A New Hope where Han Solo is doing the, no, we're all fine here. How are you? Like, that's that's what's going on in my head right that's now. That's right. And then, and, then, and then you shoot the console yes. with your blaster. Boring conversation boring, anyway. Boring conversation anyway, and, yeah. And honestly, like, let me extend this metaphor. Let me torture this metaphor a little bit. It is a boring conversation. <laughs> We won. We we won. And when we when we win, we tend to do this self-recrimination thing where we say, why didn't we win bigger? Instead of saying, what did we do right in the places where we did things right? And where could we make room for improvement? We we tend to rend our garments and gnash our teeth over the fact that we didn't win even larger than we did. We did this in 2018. We totally saw this in 2018. I had our our PTSD window was smaller this year than it was in 2018, but it still took several days to come to terms with the fact that like, we won with a massive margin and a lot of state seats stayed put and the Senate map was very hard to begin with. I mean, I remember being, you know, last year talking about how difficult it was this year and this year talking about how difficult it was next year. The point is we're breaking ground. We're making ground and we're doing a lot of things right. And I wish we were focusing (laughs) on what we were doing right. Um, two barks to the yes, but you, <laughs> then my puppy agrees you, with me. <laughs> you put some interesting questions on the table. I'm so I'm going to ask you them. Why? Why didn't you win more? Why didn't the Democrats win more? There were a thousand reasons why we didn't win more, but I think a, a really big one is the underpinning of racism in America. We have a lot of work to do. That 70 million people saw what was happening from inside their houses, where they are because there is an uncontrolled pandemic that our leader doesn't care about, he fed them no agenda, no second-term platform, absolutely nothing except increasingly unhinged and violent-sounding white nationalism, and they said yes. 
that's a problem. That's a problem for the country. That's a problem for humanity. I don't know that that's necessarily a problem for the Democratic leadership unless they decide that what they need to do is spend all of their time and energy figuring out that 70 million at the expense of the new people we brought into the fold this year and the group of Americans I think we're not talking about at all enough, the 80 plus million who didn't vote at all. Like that's where I think we ought to be putting our focus because if we don't expand this electorate, then we will never be able to outrun the racist foundations of this society, which means gerrymandering, which means the electoral college, which means we have to beat a bigger and bigger point spread every year. And the only way to do that, unless we can have some serious democratic reforms, which is in question with the Senate in question, uh, is by dramatically expanding the electorate. We have the people to do it. The question is, are we going to do the outreach? Now, the point about we live in a racist country, it is true, but it wasn't less racist in 2018, and it's not going to be unracist in 2022. In fact, all the, I would put that, that's the most shocking and appalling part of the bucket, but I would put that all in the bucket of there are a lot of people that very, very fundamentally do not and might never share democratic values. Yeah. But you could still win elections and you could still do very well given that this is this is the groundwork that we're living on. So then the other question that you asked was, you know, why did we do as well as we did in the places that we did? What's the answer to that? I, I think it's direct voter contact. I think that we have a, a new a new crop of legislators who have come directly from communities. They do not look like the traditional politicians, and they do not do voter outreach in the way that we have traditionally seen voter outreach done. There are a lot of people in elected office with activist roots now, and they will look to the grassroots communities that are doing organizing around the issues that actually move people to the polls, and they will engage with them earlier, which means they are talking to more people earlier. I mean, the re- like let's, let's take Reverend Warnock, right? So he's in a runoff that he was never supposed to be in. And he's there because he didn't follow conventional wisdom about how to win in Georgia. When I say conventional wisdom, I I mean the idea that like black people only live in urban areas. You know, Reverend Warnock ran up the table in rural Georgia because there are black voters there that we never go see. We never find them. We flipped Arizona because of a decade of, of incredible work being done by Latinas opposing Arpaio and SB 1070 and indigenous people. Like th- this is happening and we need, I, I want the Democratic Party leadership to recognize what is the driving force be- behind what is changing our map. And it's, it's I don't, re- honestly, I don't much care about a national message. We're an enormous country with, you know, 76 million people voting for us and another 80 million out there. I think we talk to them. We don't talk at them. I don't care about the slogan. I care about meeting their needs. And that includes having deep, real friend-to-friend conversations with them that are not based on an election year. That is how we won the seats that we won this time. That is how we hung on to the seats we hung on to this time. Um, And I think, you know, the reason why we lost some seats that we didn't want to is because that wasn't happening there. Yes, I've highlighted this point that for all the recriminations, the fact that Democrats played by the rules of reality in the pandemic more than Republicans did in terms of direct voter to voter contact, eyeball to eyeball, as Better O'Rourke called it in his analysis, that can't be that can't be overstated. That's huge. It's kind of being ignored. No, it's 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 enormous. And it's not just that we play by the rules in the pandemic. We play by the rules, period. It is easier, easier to get people if you are willing to lie to them. 
If you have absolutely no principles, if you have nothing to sell, if you are just willing to lie to them and say whatever you need to say, that is an easier game to win than one where you are required to tell the truth, even if the truth is going to be something that your voter doesn't want to hear. Like Democrats are always hamstrung by the fact that we have principles and the other side doesn't, and we were this year too. We were also hamstrung by the fact that this is the second election that we've had without the Voting Rights Act which means we are dealing, like when I said it's a racist country, I don't mean there are 70 million racists in this country. I mean, the country is set up to protect racism. And we have to, we have to beat that spread every time. We don't know how many of the 80 plus million who didn't vote, didn't vote because it was too onerous to get to the polls because they had a disability that prevented them from waiting in line for two. Like we, we don't know enough about those people and what are their barriers to entry. We can, be, we can be pretty certain, given what we know about those demographics, that there are a lot of Democratic voters in there, but we got to do the work to make sure that people have access to the ballot because our, our country's systems are not set up to make it easy. So what you're pointing to is the skills of electioneering. You're, you're pointing to how the ground as it is defined, the terrain is not amenable to right. the Democratic Party as much as the Republicans. So I want to um, bear in on a couple of the points you made. When you talked about the activists who are doing a good job, the ones that you raised as an example are more from the progressive side. So the way I think about it is a couple things. One, it is important to match a candidate to a district. So I don't know that even with all those tactics, if you know, Warnock or um, AOC were campaigning in Mickey Sherrill's district or Abigail Spamberger's district, she'd win. And we could also add to that, there are plenty of members of the House of Representatives who campaign hard and well as suited to their district, um, like Lauren Underwood and Antonio Delgado, who have all those skills, who aren't progressive per se, who are would be defined by most conventional measures as moderate. So maybe we're agreeing with each other that the distinction between moderate and progressive is way, way, way down on the list yes. about what makes Democrats win or lose. I literally nobody outside of our our little you know Acela bubble, if we still call it that, even though we don't take the Acela anymore. Um, nobody thinks in terms of moderate and progressive. Like, no, I've never met a voter that thinks that way. There are a few people who now identify as socialists, but no one says, I'm, you know, I'm a centrist. Like, it's just not how, like, policies, I mean, every, every Medicare for all, and I'm not a healthcare expert, so I, I want the plan that covers the most people, and I, I want to trust the leader that's going to implement it, and that's sort of always been my position on, on how we get to universal healthcare. But every Medicare for all co-sponsor in a swing seat, one, like that's not a that's not a message problem. They had the right tactics. Like I think you know AOC AOC's tactics in a non-progressive district would still work because her tactics are literally listening to your constituents, meeting them where they are, not taking anybody for granted, and putting in the the, the both the shoe leather and the digital leather um, necessary to reach them. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, she's gifted in a lot of ways. I don't know. I mean, it's a moot point, but I don't know that if she went into the majority of congressional districts or the district next door, actually, and kind of chased and shamed away Amazon from moving into their district. I don't know how popular that would be, say, in uh, central Virginia, where Spamberger serves. 
Yeah, no, and I, I genuinely don't, I, I don't know the answer to that question either because I have not canvassed Central Virginia to see how people are feeling about it. I'm pretty sure that if her district had been clamoring for the Amazon warehouse, she would have been a champion of making sure it was done in a way that benefited the district. But that wasn't going to be helpful. You know, I live close enough to be able to say, we didn't want it. <laughs> and and that wound up being, being a, a way that she could provide leadership for the community that she was in. But... I think we spend way too much time thinking about a national message and this idea that like, you know, yes, it would be much, much nicer if our stuff was as easy uh, to put on a bumper sticker as their stuff is, but their stuff isn't real. So of course you can fit it on a bumper sticker. Like, you know, if I wanted to promise that we would put, you know, that, that we would have a moon base by next year, that fits on a bumper sticker. I have no way of doing that. Same thing with building a wall. Like, we, we can't compare ourselves to the Republicans because they're not playing the same game at all. Is it an inevitable consequence of the nature of progressives that they are always going to antagonize and annoy moderates in terms of their perceived electoral chances more than the other way around? Of course. Of course it is. And it always has been, you know, but I think this is the other thing where where our, our movement, you know, we're, we're so nervous. We're so we're so nervous all the time. We forget that there needs to be room for different people to say different things. Yeah, well, let's apply that to AOC herself. I have a lot of respect for her tactics and her charisma and her intelligence. In fact, I know because she has or her organization has primaried moderate members of her caucus. I don't know that she is okay with certain other members of the Democratic Party having policies that she differs from. Okay, AOC is a freshman congresswoman. She does not get to say whether or not other people, other members of Congress can hold certain policies or she will go after them. I wish that Representative Ocasio-Cortez had that much power. I wish she did, but she does not. So the idea that that people are somehow hamstrung because she is too good at talking about the policies that she supports uh, is just kind of absurd on its face. Like if a, if a if a freshman congresswoman talking across the country is affecting you in your district and your people know her positions better than they know your positions, I'm supposed to think that's her problem and not yours. No, I think it fits in exactly with what you were talking about with the right-wing echo machine. They make sure that her position or some version thereof is known by everybody. Yeah, and you gotta you gotta make sure that you are being as loud about your positions and your candidacy as you know as as the Republicans are going to do. But like the last thing we want to do is say, okay, let's have our best and brightest and most progressive talent tone it down so that Republicans don't use them because they will invent them if they don't and we will never move the Overton window. Like, it is okay that we have House members who are farther to the left than our president-elect. It is, in fact, vital. We will never progress if we're all saying exactly the same thing because no one is ever going to push the movement. We, we need to be pushed. This stuff doesn't happen without that. Jess McIntosh is co-host of Signal Boost on Sirius XM. She has served in a communications capacity for the Hillary Clinton campaign, for Emily's List. And I also think 
She can be the Talleyrand. She can be the one to broker the peace between the generations of the Democratic Party. I I am the perfect age to do it. Like, I'm sitting here 39. Like, I'm, you know, I'm basically an Xer. I should be a little older to do it, actually. But anyway, call me, guys. I have space. Jess, thanks so much. Thank you. This is really fun. And now the spiel, a mini spiel. I was going to do an Antan Twig, I owe you one, wherein I get to all your letters, all my corrections, but I just want to focus on one letter I got. By letter, I mean email, but it sounds a little formal to say letter. Quill upon parchment. So a listener, a future former listener, I'm giving away the end a little bit there, writes in an email, a coup could still happen. Yeah, a coup could. And if the birds overthrow the fish and enforce their way of life, then a cooed cod could coo. A Tom Cruise-themed sea voyage could be the subject of a mutiny led by the junior senator from Texas, right? A cruise cruise could cause a cruise coup. By the way, they don't serve rice on that cruise. They serve couscous. But again, anything could happen, right? Woolly mammoths could become the hottest pet of the season. Donald Trump could develop a sudden interest in Queen's Gambit. Should have gone rook tonight for very low IQ, Rui Lopez. And thus, I retire my bad Trump impression. So the writer, who was upset with me for opining that mm, a coup is not in the offing, he notes, I think dismissing outright, and with excessive snark, frankly, the idea of some sort of coup shows, to borrow a phrase from the 9-11 report, a failure of imagination. Well, yes, we did fail to imagine 9-11. I mean, on 9-10, we knew that the next day would be 9-11. We had calendars. We just missed the part about the airplanes into the building. That's not a good metaphor, though, because a coup is in the air. There is a binary question. Will there be a coup or won't there be a coup? It's in the air. Is it in the offing? That's not the case with 9-11. And with coups, I say, no, it's not in the offing. And I said so. I argued with about the level of snark that you're hearing right now. This is my, you know, standard snark level. I get it. I get it. The listener was concerned. That's right. You should be concerned about the state of democracy. It's being denigrated and degraded all the time. And maybe he thought I was dismissing a very real possibility and being too flippant. If I were in another forum, I would probably lay out the case with all the jokes. But you know, we're friends here. And I just think it's pretty clear that there's a strong case that Donald Trump just doesn't want to put in the work of a coup. And we are seeing more and more of that every day. I do wonder, and here's why I bring this whole letter up. It's not to re-argue or litigate the point. I wonder what's behind the impulse to express such a sentiment. Part of it is, you know, he disagrees with me and he's somewhat offended by my dismissiveness. It is, you know, it can be an off-putting tone, especially with something that you hold very dear, something that's that matters to you on a gut level. If I were to hear those remarks and someone were to say, the media just needs to ignore this, and Ben Shapiro was saying a version of this, I say, shut up, this is important, you know, but I do think the media is doing its job by telling us what Trump is doing, and professionals within the government are doing their job by not letting, you know, Trump lazily back his way into power. I say, pay attention, just don't jump to the most dire conclusions. But here's the bigger question, and it's not just about will there be a coup or won't there. What do we want from our news? What do we want from our media? 
I understand there is an emotional component to everything. And if you can make an emotional component to an audience, it's always deeper than just a factual component. But I really, and this is one of my lessons during the Trump period, I never really understood the extent to which news consumers want to be consoled. They turn to the news or like-minded news outlets for consolation. I mean, just the facts, but lots of feelings too. I didn't realize how much we needed this, but I guess we do. Or do we? I mean, can we get out of the habit of using our news for sucker and solace? Did Donald Trump abuse us into this cowering posture? Or did he give permission to news outlets and the consumers they cater to to indulge in what always was a latent tendency? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Hmm. I'm going to ponder it, but you know who won't be pondering these words? The listener who wrote that a coup could happen letter because he ended his email with, I'm going to unsubscribe again and check back January 20th, to which I replied, okay, I look forward to hearing from you on January 20th. Please let me know who's president then. At least I ended the exchange on a not in any way snarky note. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. She thinks that if Democrats really want to win, they should launch a Kickstarter where the funds would go to Sting, Andy Summers, and Stuart Copeland. And then they could say, actually, we support refund the police. Huh? It stops the misinformation cold. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He heard my clever play on words involving a suitcase a little while ago. And he said, no, we need to defund the police. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She wants a second freezer, but worries that that will just convince her to buy more venison in bulk on the theory we could just freeze it. The gist, no Democrat who supported Medicare for All lost, but no Republican who coached Texas Tech to a 9-17 record in Big 12 play and also doesn't know the three branches of government lost. Also, every WNBA owner has at least made a runoff. It's hard to know what lessons to draw other than the electoral process favors those who have the right policy positions or are billionaires or have coached college football in the South. Rammer jammer yellow hammer and oomperu depperu duperu and thanks for listening.